0: Hi, book lovers. This is Ellen Hildebrand, best-selling author of 30 books, including The Hotel Nantucket and The Perfect Couple.
1: And this is Tim Ehrenberg, creator of Tim Talks Books. And you're listening to Books, Beach, and Beyond, presented by N Magazine.
0: We'll be diving into the wonderful world of books and featuring special guests from best-selling and award-winning writers, publishing industry insiders, agents and editors, book influencers, and more.
1: There's nothing Ellen and I love more than talking about books. And our favorite question to ask each other is, what are you reading? But we'll go even further here on the show, exploring the craft of writing, the process of book publishing, and that wonderful connection a reader has with a favorite book.
0: But before we head into our episode, we want to take this opportunity to thank our incredible premier sponsors, Nantucket Book Partners, Marine Home Center, the Nantucket Hotel, cartelina and nantucket looms
1: without their generous support we wouldn't be able to bring you these fascinating conversations with some of the most dynamic leaders from the book world
0: so thank you and now on to the show hello ellen hi tim it's
1: been a while since we've been in the
0: studio i know it's Um, exciting
1: five-star weekend spent 11 weeks on the new york times bestseller list three weeks as number one Congratulations. Thank you. So my question to you is do you after all that success do you have doubt when you put out a book? Like okay. is it like do you suffer from like is this are they going to like it? Is my editor going to
0: like it? All the time. I I'm up all night every night for the entire year just worrying it's not going to be as good as the last one. People aren't going to like it. You know, the 5-star weekend, both the Hotel Nantucket and the 5-star weekend caused me so much anxiety cuz I'm like I, I they don't I'm not going to make be able to make them work. I can't I can't get it right. And I just always say to myself, don't panic, don't panic.
2: It's and interesting. That, and I that's feel- how
0: I feel like I'm writing my last Nantucket summer novel right now, Swan Song, and there's a lot going on, and I'm just like, is there too much going on? And <laughs> So it's it's always
1: something. I think you'd want that doubt, though, because if it, you didn't have it and were just it in, then that would be yeah. the book that you wouldn't want to put out there. Right.
0: So. It's almost a good sign that I'm so freaked out about it. One
1: thing I know for certain, there is no doubt for me that I love our guest on today's episode as a writer and as a human. Jodi Pico is the number one New York Times bestselling author of 28 novels, including Mad Honey, Wish You Were Here, Small Great Things, Leaving Time, My Sister's Keeper, along with my personal favorites, 19 Minutes, Second Glance, and Lone Wolf. And also with daughter Samantha Van Leer, two young adult novels, Between the Lines and Off the Page. She is also a librettist for musical theater and the co-writer of Between the Lines, which debuted off Broadway in 2022, and an adaptation of The Book Thief, which debuted in the United Kingdom in 2022 and is bound for the West End. Pico and her husband live in New Hampshire. Jody, my friend, welcome.
2: Hello, Hello Jody. Hi, Ellen. Hi, Tim. How are you guys?
1: We are fantastic because you're here. Yes. I, I want uh. to start. By saying that um if I have two author besties in the world, it are the two that I get to talk to today, and it is just my privilege and honor to have have you both here. I'm gonna start with the number one thing I hear in the bookstore is I know Elon and Jody Picolt. And I'm gonna set the record straight here. Their names are Ellen Hildebrand and Jody Pico. Correct?
2: And you're your time. Is that right? Is that how we pronounce
1: your name? Exactly. Yeah. So I, yeah. I started this episode by asking Ellen if she ever has doubt. And that was inspired by an email that you just put out because you sent your new book that we won't see for a while, but to your editor. And you were saying you think after all these years, you wouldn't have that doubt. So we really want to hear about the book. And then I also want to kind of hear about that doubt that you have.
2: Yeah, it's. I'm really excited about this book. Right now, it's called By Any Other Name, and it will basically convince you that Shakespeare didn't write his plays, but that quite possibly a woman named Amelia Bassano did. She is a real person. She was the first published female poet in the United Kingdom. And back then, when women were not allowed to be on the stage or write for the stage, I think she had a hand in creating what was attributed to William Shakespeare's name. And it's really a book about gender discrimination in writing and in theater. That's the historical part. And then there's a modern day part, which is about her descendant who is a young playwright in New York City who is still facing the same kinds of gender discrimination 400 years later. And it was a really challenging book to write. The historical fiction Part nearly killed me getting it accurate and making sure that I was keeping all my balls juggling in the air as I was learning from academics and and studying actual first source documents. My advice to you, Ellen, is don't write historical fiction. It's really really hard. Yeah, uh. <laughs> I can't even imagine. But, <laughs> I have to say, like the
0: premise is so fascinating. One of my favorite books in recent memory was Hamnet by Maggie O'Farrell. Yes. <sighs> mm. loved it so much. I don't love even like I don't even like Shakespeare, but that <laughs> novel made me so interested in his actual so this book I'm going to I'm I'm going to love it.
2: Yeah, I'm going to yeah. love it. So one of the very first facts that I learned about Elizabethan England was that you could only have a bird of prey, a certain bird of prey based on your status. In society. And one of the first scenes in Hamnet is Anne Hathaway working with like a Falcon or something. That would not have ever happened. I was like, what? You know, I mean, I I love that book too, but immediately I was like, oh, 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 it's not accurate. It's not accurate. Yeah.
0: (laughs) My Uh book is accurate. We heard it. But yeah, yeah.
2: I mean, I I love the book too. Let's suspend disbelief. But I will say that, you know, I was really worried because I'm so excited about this book and you know, there's a part of you that releases it to your editor and you're suddenly like, what if I'm the only person who is excited about this book? What if what if people don't really want to read about this? What if I screwed up and I got the history wrong? What if, you know, what if people feel like, oh, you know, it's going to be like taking a high school English course, which it's not, you know, but I, I mean, I, I worry about that all the time. And the other thing I worry about, which I bet you do too, because you've written so much, is that, Every time I think I, I try to outdo myself with every book, I really want to do better than, you know, each time. And I try to set a challenge and I think I nailed it. And then I'm like, what if I'm the only person who thinks I nailed it? What, what if it's actually worse? Right. You know, so it's just, there's always doubt. I, I think, I think we writers are just a really needy lot. I mean, I think it's it's better, it's better, I think what Tim says is better that way, otherwise
0: you succumb to hubris, and you're like, oh, yeah. you know, I'm Jody Pico, and it's going to be fabulous, and I, I just, I, I never think that, but I do have a question, do you run it past anybody else before it goes to your editor?
2: Yeah. So, I have a few beta readers who are, they range from, like, friends of mine to really strong readers who just read everything, to my mom, or my agent, or uh, librarians, people who I've worked with in the past, and they... Some of them are really good at giving feedback. Some of them are really good at letting me know that they're laughing or crying at the right points, you know, or if it's getting distracting or they don't understand something, they're a good benchmark. So I do have some beta readers that that I send it out to. This book was really different because I've written like 30 novels and I've written exactly in the order in which you read it. And very often I play with time periods or I play with narrative voices and I've always switched back and forth. I couldn't do it with this one because there are two different time periods. And it was so hard staying in Elizabethan England that I could not go back and forth. So because of that, a lot of my, my beta readers didn't read it the way that, that they usually do. Cause I wanted my agent and my mom to see the whole book when it was finished, which meant I had to do one half. The other half, then I had to kind of join them together and massage them. Oh.
0: That brings me to another question, which is so off topic, Ellen, I can't believe you're gonna ask it. But the, <laughs> the novel because the novel Spark of Light is written backwards. Oh yes. And I wondered, did you uh-huh. actually write it forwards and then backward
2: and then backload it? Or no? Okay, no. So you wrote yeah, it backwards. What I I did for that that book was a nightmare to write because of that. And I, I wound up writing a, I think it was like a forty-nine page single spaced outline. Okay. Because not only was it going backwards, but it was tracking eight different characters at different points in that that time frame. So I had to make sure I was always checking in with them as I continued to move through time. So I I had it all outlined, and that was kind of the nightmare. It was organizing it so that I was not revealing something before I needed to. Right. It's hard to write a mystery in reverse. Basically. That's exactly what but you then, did. When I edited it, I edited it the way you read it, okay, and then I edited it in reverse, okay, just so that I made sure that it worked in both directions.
1: And you said it was one of the harder things you've done, right?
2: Yeah, it's the reason why when I worked on Mad Honey with Jenny Boylan, it was my idea that her character lily that her voice go backward in time because there was just i was not doing that i I said you could do it this time i'm I'm done
1: but it was your idea (laughs) to make her do it
2: (laughs) (laughs) great
0: yeah okay so speaking of going backwards i want to go back to the beginning get a little bit of your origin story 30 years ago i you and i have done one event together yeah it was and fun. it was so fun yeah. in Cambridge, in Cambridge, in Brookline, somewhere outside of Boston. Yeah, But I don't know. I can't remember the story. How did you get started in your publishing journey? What was your breakout book? Like, what was the moment where you took off? And, and can you can you take us back there?
2: Yeah, when you say origin story though, it makes me wish that I had like a spider bite and it got radioactive or something like that. (laughs) I I want a, a villain origin story. So I actually loved to write when I was a kid. My mom says the first book I wrote, I wrote when I was five and I illustrated it and it was called The Lobster That Was Misunderstood. And I went to a mediocre public high school but had great teachers who encouraged me to write and wound up going to Princeton so that I could study with living breathing writers in a creative writing program because when I was in school when the dinosaurs were walking around they didn't have a lot at the undergraduate level they were mostly graduate programs so I got to work with an amazing author named Mary Morris who I'm still a huge fan of and a friend of now and when I graduated, I had to write a creative thesis. I, my first novel was written at Princeton. It was called Developments. It has never been published. It should never be published. And um, but it was like it was like training wheels, right? Like learning yeah. how to move from a short story, which is like juggling oranges, to juggling elephants, which is like a novel. And having Mary holding my hand for that was really really important. And then I started to look for an agent, and I had over one hundred rejections from agents. And finally, a woman who I had written to said, I've never represented anyone before. I'm starting my own agency, but I think I can represent you. And she is still my agent 30 years later. Oh my goodness. Yeah. And I had been writing like this whole time. She, she, I gave her this book development as a submission, but you know, when it didn't sell and I couldn't find an agent, I was still writing because that's what writers do. They just write. And so I gave her the book that I was working on and she sold that in about, three months and that was called Songs of the Humpback Whale. And it came out in nineteen ninety one. No, nineteen ninety two, right after my first son was born. And I basically had either a book or a baby, you know, every year after that, sometimes both. You know, and and it's funny, I I think a lot of people think I was this overnight success. And I really I was not an overnight success. I was never an Oprah pick. You know, I people assume that too. I literally just, it was like that old, you know, the what was the old shampoo commercial? You know, I'll tell two friends, and they'll tell two friends, and so on, and so so on. Right. And that really is what happened with my books. I think people read them, and liked them, and told others to read them. And so, I had a very organic growth of readership. There were what I call, like, high watermarks in my career. The Pact was one of them. Yeah. And My Sister's Keeper was one of them, and 19 Minutes, and wish you were here, I would say. And Mad Honey, which, you know, was on the New York Times list for half a year. I mean, those are really big, those were really big juggernauts for me. But, but yeah, it's, it has not been, it hasn't been, it's, look, the way I like to phrase it is, it's been the world's longest overnight, if I am an overnight (laughs) success. (laughs) Because, you know, I mean, I'm still here 30 years later.
1: You know, I want, uh, collection of all of these authors that we're having on this podcast and yours first book that will never be published Kristen hannah said it jody said it you have, have one, one ellen i want to collect yeah. that and ha- and i want to read all of them oh my
0: god mine was <laughs> terrible i was just no, terrible terrible, you terrible.
1: Well, okay well then i want yes. you all to look at them now and like make them readable because i bet there's something in there jody you write books about really tough subjects some that divide this country and you always do it in a way in my opinion that has both perspectives on it so have you ever started writing a book and you have one opinion and then changed your own mind on that opinion
2: i haven't really changed my mind on an opinion but i have learned so much about a topic that the reason that i believe one thing or another changes a really good example of that would be change of heart when i was writing about the death penalty and I, I was against the death penalty, but by the time I had done all the research behind it, the reasons I was against it, I had basically poked holes in, hmm. you know, by looking at the other side's point of view. And the real reason that I learned, you know, for not wanting the death penalty is just that you, if you say that you're in favor of the death penalty, then you, you don't believe in the second chances. You don't, you, you're saying we don't want this person in our gene pool ever. And that is a very hard pill to swallow for me, you know, but it didn't have, it turns out it doesn't have much to do with, with things being cheaper or recidivism rates and stuff like that. It just that really, those are crutches we lean on. And so very often I'll, I'll learn something in the, the writing of a book that changes my mind about a topic, but I haven't, I haven't ever flipped my opinion. Not yet. But you know what the other thing I I will point out is I don't I'm not sending out to flip your opinion mm-hmm. when I write a book. What I am asking you to do is say why do you believe what you believe? Because that's the journey I'm going through and you know that's a good example of that. Uh, one of the things that is sort of
0: the trademark of your novels is the twist. Fair enough. <laughs> um <laughs> you always say you know you, so I actually didn't know this but Tim told me that you know the <laughs> ending of a book before you write the first word. So you
2: know what the twist yeah. is.
0: Okay. Is there any plot twist that changed from the original idea?
2: So the plot twists didn't change from the original idea because like it's that's how I structure my brain before I write a book. I'm like, okay, here's where I'm starting and here's where I have to get. How I get there is always up for grabs. And very often characters do things that shock me, surprise me, take me off in a different direction. And it's kind of fun to hang on to the reins and see where they're going to lead to. I have, however, I I would say probably the hardest plot twist for me was in Wish You Were Here. It has a massive massive, plot twist. Massive. It comes in the middle, and I honestly had no idea what the second half of that book was going to (laughs) be. I was like, well, who knows? I hope people enjoyed that. Yeah, it was during COVID, and I was like, my whole life is such a mess at that point, you know, and I was... It was just, it writing that book was a reaction for me to lockdown and to having Aslan being terrified and, you know, and and having my whole world upended, like all of us did. And, you know, I always say that I wrote the book because I didn't have a therapist yet. And so, you know, that was kind of what that was for me. And halfway through the book, I knew I was going to have this twist in there. And then I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do after that. wow And I, I have never started a book not knowing the end until then. Hmm. but once I got to the middle and I got to the twist, it was very organic and I was like, oh, I just made a really big knot. All I have to do is untangle it now.
0: You know, so I then screamed. I figured out what I do.
2: screamed.
1: Yeah. <laughs> yeah, you could not see that. Cause... I
0: screamed. <laughs> we won't say yeah. anything else because maybe there are people who, haven't, who
1: exactly.
2: haven't read it. I always do say one day my twist is that I won't have a twist. Just be ready. <laughs> okay.
1: People will be like, <laughs> well, I wait, no, I they'll call the, the, the bookstore and they'll yeah. be like, um, I didn't get all the pages of the books, Tim. <laughs> yes. You need to send us the rest. <laughs> so we're we're naming all the bullet points of a Jodi Pico novel, The <laughs> the, weird, the twist, both perspectives. The other one is the research. We alluded to it a little bit in the beginning. I'm always so fascinated with that chunk of time that you spend on your research and then being able to seamlessly put that into a novel. Can you share with us some of your favorite stories or people that you met during these from all 30 years of writing books, what do you have a favorite?
2: Yeah, my favorite is 100% the research I did with Ghost Hunters for Second Glance they're actually, they have a show called Ghost Hunters now, and they're on TV, but back when I met them, they were Roto-Rooter plumbers in Rhode Island, and they were doing this on the side, and I had found them online, I was looking for the closest paranormal society to where I lived, and they were like, oh, come on down, you know, we'll teach you about ghosts, so I remember that my my oldest son, Kyle, was probably about like eight or nine, and he was terrified of ghosts, so here I am going, you know, there's no such thing as ghosts, and then I'm packing my car to go ghost hunting. So, I go down in January, and they take me to an abandoned mental institution in Providence that burned down with people in it, and it's very cold out. We've been told to park facing backward, because often when you are ghost hunting, you're also trespassing, fun fact. And so, we we start walking, and we go to this abandoned exercise, like, hut, and there's a really disgusting pool inside you could look through the slats and the boarding up windows and one of the guys takes his camera and he takes a picture and it's a digital camera and what you see look like fireflies all over the screen and that's what a ghost hunting will tell you is energy changing form like a ghost trying to manifest and I'm like yeah okay whatever and uh, then I'm walking in an area where a building burned down with people in it and all the hair stands up on the back of my neck And before I can even say anything, the guy I'm walking with takes his camera, points it over our shoulders backward, and takes a picture. And when we turned around, it was pitch black. But in the viewfinder was this white, misty, race-like thing. And I was like, okay, maybe you guys have a point. (laughs) And from there, they took me to a home over the border in Massachusetts where they had gotten a call saying that they had been hearing calliope music and like two in the morning and they found a child's toy piano playing on the stairs without batteries they've come home to find like all of the cereal spilled out of the kitchen cabinets on the floor all the faucets running they called these guys to investigate and they did what they do on the show we all went upstairs to the third floor to the attic and they put a video camera in there and they just set it running they gave me the key and i walked out locked the door which was a padlock put the key in my pocket they went downstairs to talk to the owners of the house. I stopped on the second level because these parents had two kids who were like six months to 22 months. And they were in two separate cribs and two separate rooms. And I, you know, peeked my head in and they were fast asleep, nothing going on. And I went back downstairs and listened to the owners talking to the ghost hunters for a while. And then I said, I'm going to go check on your kids. Went back upstairs and this is five minutes of the past where there had been nothing on the floor of the first child's room on the edge of the crib on the floor like making an l-shaped outline were six pennies that were all dated between 1968 and 1973 so i picked them up and i put them in my pocket went to the next kid's room same thing where there had been nothing on the floor there were now six pennies in an l-shape 1968 to 1973 Finally, I took the key out of my pocket, opened the padlock, went upstairs to the attic, and underneath the video camera tripod, as if someone had gone like, were another 25 pennies, all dated between 68 and 73. I still have all the pennies. If you look in your purse now, you'll have a hard time finding even one with that date on it. And eventually, I, I did go home after this, but eventually the ghost hunters went back a couple more times, decided there was paranormal activity. And did some research and learned that two people died in the house—one in 1968 and one in 1973. That's crazy. Wow. Okay, I'm
0: like, wow. I'm chills. I'm speechless. <laughs> yeah, I love totally second
1: glance. Cool. I mean, second glance yeah, is all full of full of those things. Yeah, that's
0: fascinating. We're going to take a quick break so we can thank one of our premier sponsors, the Nantucket Hotel. Yes. There really is a Hotel Nantucket called the Nantucket Hotel. And it's the island's only year-round hotel nestled downtown. Come see why Hilder Babes return every year to one of my favorite island hangouts and the inspiration for my novel. New this season is Sailor's Valentine, Nantucket's most romantic dining spot on the front porch. Small bites and craft cocktails. Discover the new look of the lobby and dine in the breeze for delicious coastal cuisine done eating? Why not join the Nantucket Club and work out, swim, or get a massage at downtown's only fitness club? It's all happening at the Nantucket Hotel.
1: So you wrote an entire novel about this place. (laughs) I did. What is the best thing about the Nantucket Hotel?
0: I mean, I think the best thing is it's family owned. It's independently owned. So it's not a corporation. You're not checking into a Hilton. It feels very specific to place. It's absolutely gorgeous. Everything is hand curated. It has just a very Nantucket vibe to it, which I absolutely love.
1: The staff is so friendly.
0: Yes, the best staff. And the amenities, like the gym, I started by going to the, I joined the club at that point where you could join the the gym and the pool. And I was there in the morning to work out. And then I went in the afternoon and I wrote, I think, three novels sitting by the pool.
1: Wow. And I think it's being redesigned, right? It's like everything brand new. lobby has been new.
0: completely redone. It is absolutely stunning. And now they have the new Sailor's Valentine little cocktail small bites place on the porch, front well, porch. Well,
1: we'll have to go check that out for sure. We will. Thank you, Nantucket Hotel. Thank you. This is a question for both of you, actually, because you both have told me before that you have, as a writer, you have to be your best editor. Like you, before you write, you know, you write on the yellow pads and then you're editing it. What is a quirk of Jody that you're constantly editing about yourself? And Ellen, same question to you. Like, what is it? What's an Ellen quirk that you're constantly editing for yourself?
2: I can promise you that I will never get the timeline right, ever. Like, when my copy editor sends back my copy edited manuscript, they're always pointing out, well, this was in March and now it's a week later and it's December. <laughs> and, you know, like I'm not I'm always like, I'm gonna be really vigilant this time. And I just never get them all. It's so hard to keep track of that stuff. I have that problem also, but I
0: I mean I just I'm always going back in you know, you want to say the most with the fewest number of words, I think, and so yeah. I, I do always. And Jody, I don't know, I always overwrite at first. You you overwrite because, and I'm always because like, you can take it out, you know. But and then I'm always like when I'm doing my personal editing, I'm always like deleting, 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 mm. deleting.
1: That's deleting. so interesting. You'd Isn't almost that? think it's the opposite that you'd underwrite and then add. That's crazy. No.
2: Hmm. Yeah. Most of the time, there. I agree. I I overwrite more than I underwrite.
0: So one enormous nerdy writer topic that I want to discuss with you Jody is point of view. I do all of my novels from multiple points of view in close third. I have I have a personal prejudice against the first part, <laughs> against the first person. I will read it and I will point out two books that I read this year that I love so much that were in first person, were yellowface and I have some questions for you by Rebecca McKay. Both first person, both outstanding. In general, i prejudice prejudiced against the first person. That was a little bit, uh, uh, I, was, I went to the University of Iowa Writers Workshop for graduate school. Frank Conroy, my professor, did not want us writing in the first person. So at that point, I just started doing close third. Talk, can we, do you, do you want to dig in here and talk about, because yeah. you do it all, but I want to talk about how you decide.
2: <laughs> It's actually a very calculated decision, and it's a very practical decision. I can't write first-person narratives. Like, I I can do multiple first-person narratives. And actually, I love doing that because it lets you kind of inhabit the character a little bit. But I can't do that if my character doesn't know something important that I need my reader to know. So that's just a very basic, normal plot point, but when you're writing stuff with twists in it, sometimes your reader has to be smarter than your character is. So, in that case, I'm going to need a third-person narrative. I I will also not write multiple first-person narratives if I'm playing around with time in a very difficult way, mostly because I don't want to break my reader's brains. Yeah. Because if, you know, like if I'm writing a book like The Book of Two Ways, which is structurally difficult, or Spark of Light, again, structurally difficult- I'm not going to make you juggle points of view, first-person points of view, and a timeline, because I want you to focus. So, I those are usually the very practical concerns that go into, you know, whether or not I write something. What I will tell you is, I wanted to write in the second person, ever since reading The Virgin Suicides. I was (laughs) like, oh, I gotta find the right story for this, right? Me too, And I did it. I, I actually wound up doing it in part in Handle With Care. And I was so proud of that because it's really hard to find a story that
0: will accommodate that. I read that book. And what I did, so I actually read a Katherine Heine short story when I was living in New York in the early 90s. She had a short story called How to Give the Wrong Impression. And it was was then later in her collection. She's a brilliant writer. And she used the second person. And it was a love story. It was such a good story. And I thought, oh, I'm going to do this. I'm, I'm dying to do this. I'm dying to do this. And I have not yet pulled it off, but what I do do is I use, and everybody already knows this who reads my novels, I use first-person plural, so I do the we of Nantucket in almost all mm-hmm. of my books, and that was something I started I believe with Summerland, which was my, I think, 10th or 11th book. You have to really, I mean, the thing is, and you know this, you have to get the confidence and understand the the structure of fiction and what you can and cannot do in order to have the confidence to to go to, like, a crazy point of view like that but i i I sometimes will have i i I did not find this i have not found this in any of your books of course but sometimes find if i'm reading a novel that has multiple first person points of view and so it everybody is i but they're different people Mm -hmm. if it is not very 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 well written yes you do not Mm -hmm. know who it is
2: yes and can i can i give you my hot take that you know that the meme with like the guy from Tangled with all the the knives of him. What's the hot take that would get you like this? The Joy Luck Club was like that. Yeah, I couldn't tell everyone apart. Right, w- great book, but I couldn't tell everyone apart. And that's a really really great point, Ellen. Because if you're not skilled at it, and if you're not really investing in the voice of the character, it just becomes the voice of the author, right. which is what you want to avoid. And so, like, that's why I love writing teenagers. I love it. Maybe because I'm getting old, but you know, I just I love being able to to channel that voice. And I love the difference between that and a woman who's in her 40s. Sure, I love writing men because they're very different too. You know, so I, it's really fun for me. Like, that's what I mean to try on other costumes and And for me, I always say it's like stepping into Wellington's and walking into a stream, right? That's using multiple first person points of view. So the stream is the narrative and it's going to keep on running no matter what, but the way that the narrative hits you is going to depend on the shape of the boot that you're in. Yeah.
0: Mm -hmm. Yeah. Anyway, absolutely fascinating. We could go on forever, but I'm going to change the topic. (laughs) Okay. I want to talk about your experience with your readers. When I first... I don't know... I can't remember when, early in my career, maybe my first three or four books, somebody said to me, you know, you should start interacting with your readers. This is before social media. I'm not sure how I was supposed to do this. But this person said to me, Jodi Pico answers every single one of her emails. And I thought, is that is that possible?
1: It is true, because in 2011, <laughs> I emailed Jodi Pico. Santi and I couldn't figure out who... I wanted to marry us and officiate the wedding. And I was like, hmm, I don't have anyone. But my, one of my favorite writers is Jody. I'm just going to email her. And she did respond to me and said no.
2: Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> OK, I said no, because I did have a personal conflict, which I can't remember what it was. But, but yeah, I, I mean, I would have done it because we would have had a great time. I, I d- the answer is I, I actually do write everybody back and i do it for a lot of reasons i i no longer answer snail mail because i couldn't keep up with that right but and i also let me also say we were just talking about this on a different thread ellen but i don't have an assistant right i've never had an assistant and so i i'm the one who reads the emails which i love when they come in if jody's team could get this to her and i'm always like team hello team where are you you know <laughs> me too Russian i spy. am the team <laughs> <dude>. <laughs> you know, exactly i am the team i'm the one woman show. but if you know i i write i think there are two reasons to write people back first of all i am not writing them you know a seven tome email i'm writing them something quick and and dirty but if someone out of all the books in the universe, has picked yours up, and takes the time to write you and say, this book really meant a lot to me. I love this book. There is absolutely nothing wrong or nothing more valuable than than saying thank you. Right. Thank you for that. There are so many books you could have read, but you picked mine. Thank you. And what I found is, you know, like you said, I've had people come into to events clutching emails, going, was this really you? Right. It means a lot to these people to hear from from their authors, their favorite authors. On the other hand, the the converse of this is also true. When I get nasty emails, and boy do I get some nasty emails. I believe that civility is dead in this country and that people think they can hide behind a computer, send off a very rude and nasty email and figure, well, they're never going to read it anymore. Well, guess what? We are human. We do read these. It hurts when you say things like that and I'm going to hold you accountable. And to that end, especially when I get people who are contentious and are angry about something I've written, or especially a topic that, you know, they don't agree with, I engage, and I will continue to engage until they personally, you know, call me, I don't know, a whore, or,
1: you know, <laughs> <to sworn> against. <laughs> it happens,
2: you know, or like, you know, I've been, I mean, on, on Twitter, well, Twitter successful for different reasons, but, you know, I, right now, because of book banning, which I'm sure we'll talk about, I've been called a groomer and a pedophile, Because my books are being banned. And so, you know, there are points where you stop engaging because you, you're never going to get past that wall. But, but I, I can tell you for a fact that there are people I have engaged with who have stopped and paused in their, their, you know, vomit stream of rhetoric to say, wait, what? You know, like there was this one woman, I was going back and forth about book banning actually, and she kept saying something about how, well, my books wouldn't be banned if I didn't have objectionable material in them. She had not read my books, mind you, but she wanted to weigh in on this. And and I said to her, but yeah, I finally got across to her the fact that in Florida, you do not have to read a book to ban it. A parent can object to a book without ever having read it or giving a reason for it. And that made her pause. And she said, what? you mean your books are getting banned and the people who are banning them haven't read the book? And I said, that is correct. And she wrote back, well, that doesn't seem very fair. Hmm. And I was like, you know, touch it. (laughs) Right. (laughs) You know, like I did it. I got through to her. So in some ways, engaging in that kind of dialogue, I think is really important. If I'm going to ask you to look at all different sides of an issue in my books, I want to walk the walk as a person too. Yeah, I will. I I want I have a bunch of different follow up
0: questions to this. First of all, I mean, (laughs) on the one hand, you know, we've been at this a long time. And so the world has changed. And so social media makes it easier, makes it way, way, way easier for people to reach out. It also makes it easier. And in some ways, I'm feeling now like a little bit of a slouch. People will (laughs) write that they like my book, and I can just click like on their comment. And instead of saying the actual words, thank you. But I don't have, I actually, and I'm sorry to anybody who's listening to this, who's like, she just only liked my comment. I do not have actual time to go in and say thank you to every single person, but I am, I am so, so grateful. Do you find that as well?
2: Like you're using yeah, social media? Absolutely. I will tell you that social media has completely changed the landscape it for has. publishing. And, it's, you know, as someone who existed before Social media as an author, it's what I call the American idolization of publishing because you are expected to not just write a good book, but you are your own best promoter of books. And you know nowadays book deals are being made based on how many followers you have as well. Right. So you have to curate that following before you even start publishing, which is really hard. And you know it's a time suck. Like every yeah. minute that I spend now on threads is time yeah. that I'm spending away from writing a book. So I do try to balance that. I do like engaging on in social media in different ways. I I find that, and it's funny, I have like all these different personalities based on the social media, right? So Facebook is almost entirely book updates or show updates. If I'm writing, you know, a musical, Instagram is like pictures of my dog and my grandson. You know, and and clips from musicals or something that I've I've been doing, and then Twitter is like where I get really angry and yeah, political, very political, and and people get very upset when they see me politically. There, and I'm like, well, you don't, you didn't have to follow me, right? You know, I mean, this is the real me. I'm allowed to be me. On social media, you know, and I haven't really figured out what Threads is going to be yet. But I stay literally tuned for
0: that. joined yesterday. <laughs> I'm on now on Threads. I and- did too. I feel
2: like an. I'm like,
0: what is? What
1: do I do? I feel so it's, old. It's going
0: to be the new Twitter, yeah. and the great thing that I'm going to use I it for. It is. The great thing I'm going to use it for is that I, people can ask me questions that I yeah. can then respond to, and everybody can see the answer rather than asking, you know, the yeah. question ten million times in your private messages. It's basically, I think it's going to be more. Well, that's what I'm going to use it for, and like people can give suggestions and yeah. talk about the books. I don't know. I haven't. I haven't really dug deep. I, I do want to point out something. Some a fun fact for everyone: Jody and I are on a tech stream with three other extremely successful best-selling novelists and it's had various names best-selling bitches it was at one point but <laughs> right let's we'll call yeah. it that i'm
1: gonna steal your phone and publish
0: that and we <laughs> no, i know it would be quite scandalous and we don't talk all the we don't talk all the time but every once in a while people will someone will have a question and we yeah. it's so nice because it's a group of five of us with you know the same level of success and we're always asking each other questions you know about publishing or about yeah. life and we found we found that very helpful i think it's great i love it yeah, yeah. So,
1: I want to go back to something Jody said about on Twitter that you're getting political and you can be you. Why? I mean, readers want you both available, but then the minute that you are available to who you are, they say, Why are you bringing? Po- I just want to read, just read, right. you know, shut up.
2: So, what, what are my Tim, thoughts? That nothing, nothing pisses me off more than hearing that because all art is political, period. You cannot write, you cannot create anything without having an opinion or a reason to create that art. So if you tell me, I don't, I don't understand why artists are getting political. I don't understand why actors get political. Why can't you just do your job? Well, my job is to challenge you.
1: Mm
2: -hmm. So that's all I have to say about that. Mic drop.
0: Okay. We're going to, I completely agree. Okay. You have collaborated with other writers. I Mm. Not yet. Well, I mean, we're going to get to that. Uh, you did two books with your daughter, and then you did Mad Honey with Jenny. So, I have just signed a two-book deal with my daughter.
2: I know! Two I'm so excited! For School novels. Do you have any advice for me? <laughs> okay. So, my advice would be write with your daughter when she's 13, and you could tell her to go to her room. Yeah. Which I don't think you're doing, but...
1: <laughs> she does
2: uh, not have that. No. No. You know, honestly... With When I was writing with Sammy, it was because the idea for the Be- Between the Lines series was hers, and I knew she was a writer, and I knew she didn't know how to write. And so, for us, the act of writing those two books was, in many ways, a private tutorial in how to write a novel, which worked because, hello, Sammy just signed a two-book deal herself, Yay, writing a little fiction. Yes. So, I'm really, it was great. It was a great experience, but it was also you know, just like any mother-daughter experience, there were times I was like, I'm going to throw you out the window now, you know, and I I think half of the original book was written in my office with her rolled up in a down comforter on the floor, (laughs) right? you know, like speaking through muffled layers, and Tim knows Sammy, so I'm sure he understands, (laughs) but, you know, I mean, it's just, but she was also a really hard worker, and she understood, now she understands how do you do it, because lots of people want to write a book, and very few people actually write a book. And so that was a very different experience than working with Jenny, for example. Jenny, who is a best-selling author, who, you know, I've admired as a writer forever, and that was like, more like, okay, let me show you what I can do. I'm going to send you this chapter. And then she would send me back a chapter, and I'd be like, oh, man why is she so good and then i would have to do better the next time and so i argue that mad honey is some of the best writing i've ever done because i was constantly trying to live up to you know my reputation into what jenny expected and uh, i think she probably felt the same way but i will also tell you that mad honey was not half the work it was twice the work okay because yeah now and i don't know how you're going to structure the writing like the stammy Sammy and I sat side-by-side side at the computer, we took turns typing, and we spoke every single word out loud. And the creepiest moments were when we'd both be like, no, 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 I have it. And and we'd start saying the exact same sentence. So I definitely think writing is in your DNA. That's what I learned from that. Right. But with Jenny and I, we split two narrative voices, and we came up with the structure of the story. We came up with an outline, and then we went back and forth writing chapters and we then we swapped chapters. One, each of us took the other character's chapter for one, one chapter, but we would then go back and edit our entire, whatever Jenny wrote, I would edit my way through and change. And whatever I wrote, she did the same. And I think that's what made it sound. Less schizophrenic. Right. It wasn't it doesn't feel like it was two writers. That's it feels like it was one. That's actually really
0: fascinating. I will never be able to, I can say this out loud, I will never be able to do that. Like I will never be able to collaborate with somebody who's not related to me. The one the I just can't I don't
1: Yeah, for don't any have, writers out there that were about to email to, Alan, be like, write a book with me. me.
0: Yeah, don't even I can't, I can't I know I can't do it. But the way Shelby and I have organized it is that I mean it's a boarding school novel, so I'm writing the adult perspective. So I'm doing the head of school, the teacher. Yeah and the parents I'm writing three quarters of it she's writing one quarter of it and then she's writing the kids <laughs> she's writing Great, the kids. that's cool and yeah th- but then the other thing she's doing is she's editing me for language because and so like she sent me notes like pages of notes with, with the co- overall comment, no one my age would ever say this. You're such a boomer. I'm like, <laughs> yes. yeah, I'm, I'm yeah. Gen X, first of all. It's Gen X. And, Rude, she, Shelby. She really, because you know that Gen Z does have their own language. And yeah. She is the... Yeah.
1: Which is key to make it authentic. She's policing yeah. it. No, you so. have to.
2: It's funny, because I actually had that conversation with Jenny, because Jenny's kids are older than mine. And so she was further away from that age group right and she was writing a 17 year old girl and her first few chapters that she said to me i was like no that's not the voice no no and i finally said here's your homework for the weekend you're gonna watch the edge of 17 you're gonna listen to this you're gonna like i wanted her to hear teen voices and then she kind of was like i get it i understand what you're saying now but yeah it is a different language you are literally learning to speak a different language yeah. hmm. And now a short
0: break to thank our sponsors, N Magazine and Nantucket Current. N Magazine and the Nantucket Current are the undisputed leading sources of stories and news here on Nantucket. N Magazine's award-winning content and design make it the most effective way to showcase everything from real estate to jewelry to luxury travel and beyond. The Current, with its online readership of nearly 20,000 email subscribers and 1 million plus annual website visits, provides readers with up-to-the-minute news and enables advertisers to instantly promote their products to a viewership like no other media on the island. Together, N and The Current are the one-two punch that blankets the island for advertisers seeking to capture one of America's most desirable markets, Nantucket Island.
1: I love Nantucket Magazine and Nantucket Current so much. I've been writing a need-to-read article for them for the last eight years, and that advertising really works. People come into the bookstore looking for those reading recommendations. And I also love all the stories in there about the community members near and far.
0: Absolutely. I read every single issue. I mean, as soon as I see the new issue, I grab it. And I always read your column, Tim, FYI. Oh, well, thank you. I also really love Nantucket Current. I've lived here 30 years, for years and years, for decades. We did not have anywhere to get breaking news on Nantucket. And now we have Nantucket Current. It's so important and so relevant that I've put it in my new novel, Swan Song. Uh, There's there's a fire and it's covered uh, in the novel by everyone on their phone is checking Nantucket Current to see what's going on. But it is such an important service. For the citizens of nantucket
1: i love it thank you and we are how lucky are we that this is also our producers yeah and magazine magazine is magazine is our
0: producer and they've done if you think they've done a great job i mean they have
1: thank you bruce thank you kit thank you emmy thank you everyone thank you guys okay moving topics we've talked to pretty much every author that we've had so far about their hollywood adaptations and your biggest one is my sister's keeper which I'm going to take you back to the times that I feel like we talked about this and they changed your ending. It wasn't the best experience for you. Can you talk a little bit about that for people that don't know and then really want to hear about where some of your other books are right now?
2: Yeah. So Hollywood is, is even weirder than publishing. And my sister's keeper was such a big moment because it, you know, it was being made by New Line Cinema, really big deal. And when I was asked to talk to Nick Cassavetes, who was the, he was going to be the director and the writer, the 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 one who adapted script. And when I met with him, I said, the only thing I'm going to ask is that you not change the ending because that literally is what sold millions of books. And he read it and he said, you're right. I'm not going to change it. If anyone does, I'm going to tell you why and I'm going to tell you myself. And I was like, okay, cool. And he called me up every week for two years and would read me parts of his script and would ask me questions about character and stuff. And it, he created a script that looked a lot like the book. And then one day I got an email from a fan who worked at a casting agency. And she said, did you know they changed the ending? And wow. I, was a, I was on a plane and we were taxiing and I called Nick at home and he would not take my call. Oh, my gosh. And so, I flew to L.A., I went to the set, I he threw me off the set, I went to New Line Cinema, I, I hadn't even said anything, mind you, but he didn't want me there, it was like, you know, parents of divorce fighting, over but the actors those their children, and I went to New Line Cinema, and I told Toby Emmerich, who was the executive, at the time, you're going to lose money on this film, because my fans want to be that ending and he said well you know nick made the notebook for us so we trust him which is exactly what you should never say to me <laughs> and,
1: <laughs> for so many reasons oh boy
2: yeah. So Oh boy. I, that is like, gold. Walked, yeah i walked out of there and i was like i'm out and like almost for mental health reasons i had to step away from that and i waited until uh, they invited me out for screening. They actually did invite me back to the set. And I did go back to the set and I didn't say anything. Yeah, I, I met everyone. I went to the screening. When we got to the part where there was a pizza party as this girl was dying, I was I actually started laughing because I was like, This is the stupidest thing I've ever seen in my life. And, you know, ultimately the movie didn't do well. And because of that, people in Hollywood thought I was psychic. And as a result of, of that terrible experience, I actually had more creative control for future projects, which is stupid and ironic. But, you know, because of that, other shows that have been adapt, other other books of mine that have been adapted and have had much more input from me, which is great. Right now, they're like, I have like all these horses that are kind of like chomping at the gate. Of course, the writer's strike just shut down the entire race. But you know, I would say right now Small Great Things is the slowest developmental process ever. It had it, it's gone through several writers. And right now Anna DeVere Smith is doing the adaptation. Wow. Right? Okay. Oh my God. So I was like super excited about that. Right. And so she just turned in another draft literally the day the writer's strike started. I got a call from the executives who sent me the draft and I sent my notes back for whenever we can give them back. And the Book of Two Ways is, it's like right there, we were ready to pitch. We had meetings at Netflix and Amazon and and Hulu and everything just stopped because of the writer's strike. So that's where that stands. Wish You Were Here is being done by Netflix. And they, what, they had a writer that is, I think they just got a draft in from her right before the writer's strike. So I haven't even seen that. And then the fourth one is, uh, oh, sorry, Mad Honey was, we just signed a deal on that first series. And um, I don't have any information about that yet. And then the last one was my personal favorite, Spark of Light, which was completely set up at Hulu with Joey King starring in it, the director who had done The Undoing with Nicole Kidman, Sony producing it, and Becca Brudstetter, who used to write for This Is Us, writing the series. It was like Dream Team, and it was so good. And Hulu yanked it when, right after the Dobbs decision, which overturned abortion rights in this country, because Hulu was owned by Disney, and Disney was afraid of being political. All right. and yeah, And everyone is so committed to that story that they are trying, Becca has been trying to refashion it as a film in the hopes that it can be sold to a streamer, if not as a series, then as an individual film, because nobody wants to let that go. And it's, to me, it was like the biggest irony, the best way to get people talking about a topic that we need to talk about in this country is probably through streaming and video. And the video streamers are afraid to do that because they will lose half of their audience speaks greatly to the power of the dollar, meaning a lot more than whatever the content is. I actually had a whole conversation with Ron Howard about this. And I said, how are artists supposed to change the world if we can't get streamers to stand behind our ideas? And he went away for like three hours and he came back and he said, you know what? You're right and you can't. (laughs) Wow. Isn't that sad? Yes. Yeah. That's sad.
1: Yeah. You touched on um, book banning before, and I, you've been in the new, not for a new book this year, but really, you've been <laughs> on every channel I turn on the TV, and it's you talking about book bans. Has that voice helped? Like, where are things? Like, where do things stand?
2: Uh, you know, it's weird. It's weird using my voice for that. I, I think it's really important to do it, but I am a very privileged, best-selling white female author. And the people who are most being affected by book bans are writers of color and LGBTQ writers. And they've been affected for many, many years and no one ever paid attention before when they spoke out. So there's a little bit of a Pyrrhic victory in being someone who's being noticed for speaking out because of the color of my skin or because I am that success. And yet it's important to do because it's a really slippery slope and it's just getting worse. You know, book bans have increased... I think it's, what's it, 2,200% or something? It's 1,100% since 2020. We've gone from 200 titles banned to over 2,500. And like I said before, in most districts, you do not have to read a book to ban it. Parents just decide it's objectionable, fill out a form, and it is yanked off the shelves. The problem is that now there are these parental rights, and I put that in quotes, laws in certain places like Florida that are enabling parents to do this that are creating cultures of fear for media specialists and teachers who can't they can't get caught with a problematic quote again problematic book on their shelves because they wind up being fined losing a teaching license or in some cases even being charged with a third degree felony and so people are operating in the education world in a culture of fear which is not it's not doing any good for our kids in any way and, you know, unfortunately, the things that these parents think they're protecting their children from are not revolutionary ideas. They're not salacious ideas. They are stories that encourage kids to think for themselves, to learn about themselves, to understand that there are people different from them in the world And that's not only okay, it's fascinating. You know, books create compassion. They create safe spaces where empathy is developed. And every time you ban a book, you are taking away that lesson from a kid. We are not protecting children from salacious material. We are removing the tools that we give them to make sense of a world that is very confusing and difficult for a lot of kids. You know, and so... For me, it's very frustrating to hear, oh, it's not a ban. You can buy it on Amazon. Well, you know, there's a reason that that school libraries exist. There are a lot of kids who cannot get access physically to a library, who can't afford a book, who can't go to a bookstore, pay for it on Amazon. That is why we have school libraries. And these groups that are inciting this riot of banning, which are mostly based in Moms for Liberty, which is a highly political conservative group that the Southern Poverty Law Center has actually classified as a a group. When they are doing this, they know very well that although laws exist about objectionable material, there's no true definition of what makes it objectionable. And there are also no protocols for review. Hmm. So when you pull a book off a shelf, it can stay off the shelf for months or years at a time. And that's what they want. They just want to create chaos in the system.
1: Well, thank you for standing up for it. Because- that is an
0: amazing. That I, I mean, there. That just cannot be. The, your your line that books create compassion is something I so fully believe in Mm -hmm. you might not think of my books as political people might not think of them as political but when you're in the mind of someone who is different from you when you're in anybody else's point of view you create empathy right because you're reading from that person's point of view so you're reading their experience and regardless of what the experience is it's expanding your own experience and And
1: that's what we all need not just kids
0: yeah
2: (laughs) and not just that ellen but i think it's also really important to point out that like the books that are being banned, I mean, I had a book about the Holocaust that was banned, and it was called Porn. And I mean, I don't know how you make that connection, but, you know, Nora Roberts has been banned in Florida. And so, for a lot of people, like, especially your readers who love and should love what you write, if they don't believe that these book bans at schools are important, they are lying to themselves because they're next on the chopping block. Anyone who likes women's fiction, who likes romance novels, who likes spice, who likes anything like that, that's being removed right. from public libraries as well, very slowly and very insidiously. And if you allow a parent to tell other parents what their kids should read, you are setting up a precedent by which one person can decide what you read. Exactly, And that is not right.
1: Well, that's a perfect segue to what are we all reading?
2: Oh, what are you reading, Jody? You know, one of the only perks about being an author is getting advanced copies. <laughs> so I just finished two great advanced copies. One is Angie Kim's book, Happiness Falls, mm-hmm. which I loved. And the other one is Allie Hazelwood's new book, which is called Bride, and is it's crazy. It is um, like a fantasy, adult fantasy. With, like, werewolves and vampires and stuff. And I decided there's nothing that woman can't write because it was so entertaining.
1: Well, that sounds fun. Ellen, what are you reading?
2: Yeah. I'm reading Speech Team. Oh! Which you recommended
0: to me, which I really, really love.
1: Oh, I'm so glad. Yes, by Tim Murphy. It's such a... By Tim Murphy. I'm really,
0: really digging it. And then recently, like, in the last week or two, I've finished The Breakaway by Jennifer Weiner, which I thought was outstanding. And a novel called Pete and Alice in Maine by Caitlin Shetterly. Also, really, really good. Highly, highly recommended.
1: Mm, okay, I will check those out. I am reading The Beasting by Paul Murray. It's up for the booker. It's a very large Irish family novel. You know I love an Irish know, novel. You, you
0: love a long novel too, dude. I know. You
1: do not. <laughs> <laughs> I'm also reading Holly by Stephen King because I will not ever not read something by Stephen King and it's actually freaking me out. So, Jody, my friend... Thank you so much for joining us today. This was so much fun. That was fun. so
0: extremely interesting. I found it absolutely I'm fascinating. I'm so
1: glad
2: I could make it. I'm really glad. Thank Thanks you. for having me. We do sound yeah. bites
1: on this, and I feel like that entire episode it could be a sound It really bite. good. So thank you, my friend.
2: Yay! You slayed. You thank came. you, you slayed. We love you, Bye. and we'll love you, see Jody. you next time. I love you too. Bye, <laughs> Bye guys. everyone. Take care. Hi, book lovers.
0: Ellen Hildebrand
1: and Tim Ehrenberg
0: here again. Just a few closing notes before you leave. We want to thank our wonderful premier sponsors, Nantucket Book Partners, Marine Home Center, the Nantucket Hotel, Cartelina, and Nantucket Looms for their generous support in the making of this show.
1: And we also want to thank our team behind the scenes, beginning with N Magazine. We want to thank our producer, Emmy Duncan, our technical director, Kit Noble, and our editor, Brian Murphy.
0: We hope you'll keep tuning in for more book talks featuring a stellar lineup of special guests all season long.
1: So please subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.
0: See you next time and happy Happy reading. reading.